take note of that. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your kindness to us, for getting us here safely this morning. And now, Father, I pray, since it is a Sunday, that you would glorify yourself through your word and cause it to bring life to us in such a way that we have hope to persevere. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second Thessalonians in chapter 2. I want to read, I believe, verses 1 through 15. Second Thessalonians and chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, I need to just glance over. It takes me a while to get all of you in. (laughs) I could make funny comments, some comments about why we don't all sit together when there are so many absent, but this works just fine. I know you have your favorite, your favorite places. I love this, the, this story I tell about a time in Denver, Colorado. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I don't know why I'm doing this. In Denver, Colorado, when we had a huge snow day, we had like three feet of snow the Saturday before, and so not very many people even in Colorado showed up, especially for our first service. That church there was a bit smaller than ours, but at our first service, like ours, we'd get a couple hundred people, maybe 250, but only about 18 showed up. 
And so I did the right thing. I gathered them all right in the, right in the first three pews, and there we were. And then one family showed up a bit late, and they dropped their children off first. And so wouldn't you know, their kids sat in the back where their family always sat. And it was just hilarious to see 18 people and three children. But anyway, maybe not so funny to you. But Paul is laying out now again about the return of our Lord Jesus very clearly. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. He's been speaking of that. He spoke about it some in his first letter, and now he needs to speak of it again in his second letter. Remember, Paul isn't writing about the return of Jesus to satisfy some curiosity in us so that we as Christians can read the papers and watch and all of that and and, and be a bit self-righteous because we know how it's going to end. That's not his purpose in telling us about the return of Jesus. The, 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 The purpose in telling this church in Thessalonica and thus us as well about the return of Jesus is to give hope to give hope in such a way that will enable us to, to stand firm, to continue to believe. He, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, realizes that what this group of persecuted Christians needs right now is a sense of the end, a sense of what is to come, the sense that Jesus is going to return and all that that means. And so he continues to lay out for them about this return, this coming uh, of Jesus. In, in, in his first letter, in chapter 4, there was a sense in which they were thinking it was taking too long for Jesus to come, and some had been dying, and so they wondered about that. What about these who've died before Jesus returns? So he speaks to them about that. He goes on to tell them, however, whenever Jesus comes, you need to be prepared because it's going to be sudden. And so you need to be prepared for his coming at any time. And then as he enters into the second letter, he he writes to them because they're being persecuted. And he writes to them and says, in a sense, endure. Your suffering, your persecution is not a sign that God's abandoned you. Rather, it's a sign that you belong to him. And a day will come when he will vindicate. He will vindicate you. Belonging to him, and he will judge, and he will reveal his glory, and we'll marvel at his glory, and we'll be glorified in him, perfected in him, and he'll be glorified uh, in us, you see, and we in him. So all of that will come, and so he says, Hang on to that. And now he says, Well, concerning this coming. Of, of, of Jesus, you see. He certainly is coming back. But they had been told and they were believing that the day of the Lord had already come. Now, how did they get such an idea? He said, well, uh, it came from a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us. So some sort of utterance, some, someone saying they had a prophecy, a prophetic word, some spirit, a spoken word. Someone said uh, a letter that, that, that seemed, didn't, but seemed 
to come from Paul. Perhaps there was a forgery going around or someone said, this is true and they won't believe me, so I'll write Paul's name to it. That's why, for instance, in chapter 3 and verse 17, I suspect that we have this uh, sentence. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. And so you want to say, no, this is, this is really mine. There's these others floating around that seem to come from me, but they don't. So I want to make sure that you know that this is genuinely, this was a genuine letter. It's really a letter. It's really from, from me. So he writes to them. Now, why in the world would they think that the day of the Lord, the end, had come, that Jesus had already come, that Jesus had already Returned. Well, it could be because they knew about the day of the Lord from the Old Testament and perhaps some teachings of Paul, and they knew the, the, the great terror that it would be, at least in some regard, and they were experiencing this persecution. Could it be that it's come, that this is it? And, you know, there's always the question, and there was the question in the early church too, is to, to what extent, really, has this kingdom of God really come? I mean, is it here in its fullness? We know at the day of the Lord it will come, the kingdom of God in its fullness. Some were saying, this is it, it's come in its fullness. Uh, Jesus has already returned. Uh, this is it, really. This is the fullness of the kingdom. Now, you see, we know that the kingdom of God has indeed come in Jesus. The rule of God has come in Jesus. When he was born, he was announced... That he was born in the city of David, and he was Christ the Lord. Everyone would know that the prophetic words of the Old Testament, most especially the prophet Isaiah, were to be fulfilled in him, and the government would be upon his shoulders. The very rule of God, the very kingdom of God would come in this one. And we saw it in his life and ministry. We saw it as, as he brought healing. And we saw it in the miraculous power that he had as, as he brought healing and health and wholeness to people. We saw in the ministry of his apostles, even while he was with them, that that they went out in his name proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God had come. At the the cross, he defeats sin and death, you see. We, we, We know of his great ascension and his rule and his reign and his sending of the Holy Spirit to, to, to live among us. And we know that because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his son, God's son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's happened. We've gone from death to life. And so isn't it here, you see? Uh, The problem with that is, and while he is ruling and reigning, Jesus, there's still resistance to his rule. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's ruling and reigning until he puts every enemy under his feet, even death. And so it isn't full, really. It isn't come in its fullness. It's what we might say inaugurated. It's begun. It's here, the kingdom, but not in its fullness. You know, the church in Corinth struggled with this sense of the kingdom of God. Is it complete or isn't it? In fact, 
Paul writes them, I don't know if it was a bit tongue-in-cheek or not, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, and he says, he says, you know, you're living like you're kings and ruling and reigning, and yet we are the scum of the earth, meaning he and the other apostles. He says, you're, you're acting as if this is it, but yet we're being persecuted. And then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we realize that they didn't believe many of them, in a resurrection from the dead. That, that all was necessary was this spiritual resurrection, this spiritual new life. And that's all that they needed. And now they could live in this triumph, if you will. And Paul had to correct them there. The same kind of thing was happening in Ephesus because when he writes to Timothy, he says the same thing to them. You know, these ones don't believe in a resurrection. You, you need to teach them and correct them. On this regard, we see this in our own day. We see many who overemphasize the present reality of the kingdom and thus believe that we can, by faith, live perfectly healthy and perfectly wealthy and all of that. And then we see those who, who overemphasize the, the, the future uh, presence of the kingdom, the future extent of it, and, and, and say that there's nothing here. We just have to hold on until we get to heaven, then everything will be great. Uh, the truth of the matter is, it's here. But not quite yet. And so we know forgiveness of sins. We know the presence of the Spirit. We know the assurance of salvation. And we see the very presence of God in our lives in various and sundry ways. Yet we still pray your kingdom come. And so here they were. So Paul was saying, if you have this sense that you think it's already come, you might become discouraged to think, if this is it, I'm, that's, this isn't what it, I really had anticipated. This isn't all it's cracked up to be. Or, or, or secondly, you, you begin to live in such a way that you'll miss the very reality of your present life. And so he says, I, I don't be so quickly shaken or alarmed. You see, don't be so quickly tossed around. And so now he's going to correct them about this return of Jesus. And he says, in essence, you can know that Jesus hasn't yet returned. The day of the Lord hasn't yet come. Because there are two things that will happen first. One thing that will happen first is that there'll be the rebellion or the falling away or the apostasy. And the second thing that will happen is that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. You can see that here, verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then he goes on to, then he goes on to describe him. Now, just as an introduction, it shouldn't surprise you that not everybody agrees on how we should understand this passage of Scripture. And when I say not everybody, I mean in the church, in the real church, however you think that to be. I'm not talking about those who are outside of, of what, the evangelical church, uh, but even within, okay? Not everybody agrees with this. And so there's a couple of ways we could walk through this. One is that I could delineate every viewpoint and probably get them down to three or four. And then we could go verse by verse and I could explain to you how each one understands 
that particular expression, that particular verse, and then where they come out at the end. That we'd be here till sometime early April, right, to do that. Now, you know, I could do that, but I won't do that. I don't think that's the best way. So what I'm going to do, if you'll, if you'll allow me, I'm going to walk this through as I've come to understand it. And I'm going to walk this through, highlighting, I hope, as fair as I can be, where there are disagreements about this. But my ultimate goal is to follow what at least I understand to be mature Christians and mature Christians who've read through this passage and done a great deal of thinking about it, as I have for the last three decades, and, uh, and use that as my guide, but to hopefully come to some application that all of us, not just us, but all of us in the church can agree with. That's a, that's a, that's a bit of a task. You may have to give me more grace than usual. But, uh, but, but, but really, to be very honest with you, uh, I, we, I, I desire to respect those who disagree because they're wonderful people. And I would agree with them elsewhere in the scripture and about the key issues. But these details we've squabbled over for a long time. But I think there's something here, and I think mostly there's something here that's essential, that's the essence of it that will help us. Now, at the end of the day, it may not satisfy because really what we want to know is who is this man of lawlessness? And we want to know what's restraining him. And I'm not going to know that. (laughs) Uh, And so with some humility... Grace, we can walk through this. I always tell people, when Jesus returns, I hope to have a clipboard nearby so I can write down everything that happens. Then I'll really know it. And then I'll have to spend some time repenting, probably, of what I thought it was and what I told people it was. And, and hopefully, though, we won't miss it, at least the big part of it, part of it too much. But these two things, this rebellion and then this man of lawlessness being revealed. What is this rebellion? Well, um, the word rebellion means to rebel against some some set of law, some law, and and, and thus to rebel against the law of God. The the question is, from whence comes this rebellion? Is it a a worldwide rebellion? Is Is it all the people of the world, except those perhaps in the church, rebel against God in some particular way that's more overt and more obvious and more united than we see day in and day out now. I think that's reasonable. I think, I think one could say that this rebellion would be that, that, that there's a rebellion in the world against God and that it's more overt than, than it's ever been and, and more universal than it's ever been. Some say that in order to fall away from God, you must have some semblance of belief or profession of faith in him. So that this falling away or this apostasy would be primarily or often even those in the church. You might remember what Jesus said, at least in anticipation of this day in Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus says, uh, 
is a sign of the end. They'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nation for, nations for my name's sake. So you can see it's getting global here, getting all nations. And then many will fall away. So you get a sense there. It's those who had been following him. Now, Jesus knew this in his own ministry. There are many who followed him and then fell away. And many who followed him and then fell away. So they'll fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold. And so, so that sense of, even in the context of what seemed to be the church, many falling away in this last time at this final, it appears, appears final rebellion. And then he says, until the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness uh, is revealed. And so, so, who is he? Well, he describes him. He's the son of destruction, which means his life will lead to ruin. He's the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so you get the sense of it. Here's one who sets himself up as God to be worshipped, to be the rule and authority of God. Now, I don't know what you picture in your mind when you think of such a person and all of this happening. I have my own pictures and all of that going on. And I always remind myself that whatever is going on in my mind, whatever I'm picturing, probably isn't anything like what this will look like. I'm not sure I have a category in my brain to know what this will look like. Uh, but 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 this is this setting. And what's fascinating is that the one thing that's that's uh, repulsive in our own culture about christianity is that we say christians say the bible says jesus said that faith in jesus is the only way of salvation there is no other it christianity sets itself up if you will is set up as being opposed really to every other way and our world says that simply can't be. There can't be any one way. This says that when this man of lawlessness comes, he will set himself up as the way. And it appears as if all will flock to him against, away from the way, the way of Jesus. This expression, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, is, is one that has, has raised some conversation. So the question is, is that the literal temple in Jerusalem? And if it's the literal temple in Jerusalem, then it means in the end that that temple will have to be rebuilt because it doesn't exist today. And so there needs to be a rebuilding of the temple. And thus, we'll find this man of lawlessness eventually showing up there in this rebuilt temple. And he'll claim to be Jehovah, if you will. He'll claim to be God. And, and people will then flock to him. Others say that when Paul uses this expression, the temple of God, he always uses it in the context of the church. You might remember that Jesus understood himself to be the very presence of God, thus the temple of the Lord. And when he was looking at the literal temple, he said, if you destroy this, I'll rebuild it in three. It'll be rebuilt in three days. And, and, and John, when he reports that parenthetically, says, and this, Jesus said, 
He was speaking of his body. And then you understand that the church is the body of Christ, the, the very temple, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, of the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul uses this expression half a dozen times in other writings, other letters, he uses it as the church. And so some argue that what this, what's happening here is that this man of lawlessness will actually set himself up in the context of, of the church somehow. And people will flock to him. And then others think this is a metaphor, a figure of speech, and a good figure of speech because it, it, it tells us when someone is setting themselves up in the temple as God, you say, oh, I get it. I, I know what that means. He's really thinking himself to be God. Uh, however you think, uh, I favor somewhere between the second and the third of that and not the first. But So the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be, to be God. And then, and then if you look in verse 9, this doesn't surprise us. He says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He's saying the one behind the man of lawlessness, of course, is Satan himself, the deceiver, the angel of light, and, uh, and who masquerades as an angel of light. And so, so Satan's behind it. No surprise there. But in the course of all of this, in, in whatever this looks like whatever we see here with power there are false signs and wonders counterfeiting really that which is true of Jesus so it doesn't surprise us that this man of lawlessness gets the nickname Paul doesn't call him this ever gets the nickname of the antichrist the one who isn't simply against Jesus against Christ but who sets himself over as an alternative to Christ, as the alternative to Christ, the true one. Counterfeits, if you will, in all these ways. So we see that here. And then verse 5, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, part of what makes this chapter difficult is that Paul's responding to a conversation that he had and he doesn't give us that conversation. It would be great if we had that conversation. He may have said, you know, this might just be little cryptic, little reminders of what he had said. And, and of course, we, don't, we shouldn't have that conversation because we don't have that conversation. But I read it. Verse 6. And you know now what is restraining him, and, and, you, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. No, we don't, but they did. He must have told them what was restrained. We know he's being restrained. He's not here. And we know, given all the theories, even with all the theories that have been given as who, what is restraining this man of lawlessness, we know that God is sovereign over the restraint. And so the restraint won't be lifted. The restrainer won't go away until God says the restraint will go away. And, and again, there have been many theories, I wonder if it isn't related to Revelation chapter 20, where the angel has bound Satan for a thousand years so that he can't deceive the nations. But I don't really need to mess with the restrainer because we don't know. They did. We don't. 
but that God is sovereign over the restrainer. And this is all in God's good timing. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So at this point, I'm thinking, as they may have been thinking, well, if there is in fact going to be a delay between the first and the second coming, I don't have to worry about this unless I'm in that last time. That's great. I suspect they began scratching their head thinking, we're being persecuted now. That must really be horrible then. But at least it's this time isn't that time. But then Paul blasts me out of my comfort zone in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, this end, man of lawlessness, is simply a, the end result of this lawlessness that's always at work. I mean, they would have known some of this. The prophet Daniel spoke of the, of the temple being desecrated. And, and there were examples of the temple being desecrated throughout the history of Israel, uh, most especially, I suppose, in the time of uh, 167, 168, 167 B.C. with um, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the Syrian who came into the temple and he put a statue of Zeus in the altar and sacrificed a pig there and all of that and the great desecration of the temple. Um, they, they would know it even in the days of Paul in 40 AD-ish. Um, Caligula, the emperor, a bit mad some say, but he had a plan at least uh, to put his statue in the in, in, in the temple and, and all of that. It, was, it didn't happen because he died before it could all take place. But, but the desecration of the temple. We know the destruction of the temple would happen after this letter. The destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD, desecrating the temple in that sense by destroying it, if you will, by going into the holy place and destroying it uh, and all of that. And then the, the emperor cults and, and emperor worship and all of that, uh, not the least of which of... Uh, Domitian or Domitian, depending on how you say his, his name, who came in and, and declared as others himself as God and persecuted Christians. And, and so you, you see this through the course of history, the, the desecrating of the physical temple, the desecrating of the church, if you will, by those who claim to be God and destroying and persecuting Christians throughout the ages. You know that this man of lawlessness was, was associated with with the medieval Catholic Church at times and with the papacy and with particular popes and all of that. In fact, if you read the original version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, our confessional document, it speaks of the pope as being a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and all of that setting up a different way of religion in the context of the life of the church. We've made some adjustments to Westminster since then. Uh, I trust the church Catholic has made some adjustments as well. And then in more recent days, political figures and so forth and so on, being this man of lawlessness. But, but the point is that the spirit of this Antichrist has been around. In fact, the Apostle John speaks of Antichrist. In 1 John and chapter 2, 
he actually uses the expression. John's the only one who uses this expression in the Bible, and he uses it in the first epistle and his second epistle as well. And listen to what he says. He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, he wrote this a long time ago. It is the last hour. It was the last hour because, you see, Christ has come. Christ had come in his first advent and won the decisive victory. So all that needs to happen in that sense has happened. Now the Lord is just waiting patiently in a time of gathering. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. In other words, he said, when these antichrists came, the spirit of antichrist, there were those with us who fell away. There were those with us who went with them. And you say, what does all this have to do with what we talked about last week? Is that little expression, once saved, always saved. And John says it like this. They went out, they fell away, because they really weren't of us. But you, he says in verse 20, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have all, and you, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in and you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And so the spirit of Antichrist denies that Jesus is from the Father, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so any time you see that anyone denies that Jesus is the Son of God, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That doesn't make that person the Antichrist but he's in the spirit of Antichrist. So all these big events that took place where people said, well, that's the Antichrist, and that's the Antichrist, and that's the Antichrist, it wasn't com- they weren't completely wrong in their evaluation. It was the spirit of Antichrist, denying Christ, setting themselves over up against Christ as the alternative to him, but were not the one, ones to come, it appears, when all of this will be brought together in that very one. But you see, even in our day, the spirit of Antichrist lives, so we must be on our guard. It can live in what is called the church. It lives in churches and is often concentrated in pastors who don't believe in the deity of Christ, who don't believe the virgin birth of Christ, who don't believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus, who don't believe 
that Jesus one day will return in glory as we have in the scripture. You simply don't believe that. And you say, well, how can that be true? And the answer is, I don't know how it could be true. Anybody could read the scripture, believe that, and stay in something called the church. But in the U.S., that might be, I don't know, a significant majority of churches, at least, of many of our denominations. So a great danger there, you see, in the spirit this of Antichrist that is, you see, to come. But then we have the good news, and that great news that when Jesus comes, he will destroy this Antichrist. But notice this, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is, the, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse the truth and so, uh, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had the pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, however we understand this about God, we realize this that at that moment, it's the very judgment of God. The very judgment of God. This is at the end. And thus this strong delusion comes as God's judgment on all those who haven't, won't believe. And no matter what then takes place, they won't believe. There's a sense of Romans 1 here where he gives them over to all their depravity. And there's a sense too that their hearts are so hardened that even if they heard the truth, they would not believe it. In fact, even as they do hear the truth, they do not believe it. You remember Jesus hinted at this when he was speaking with the religious leaders who, who claimed themselves to be of, of, of God. And, and Jesus says to them in, in Romans, I'm sorry, in, in John chapter 8, verse 45, he says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. It's causal. He says, as I tell you the truth, what happens when I tell you the truth is that you continue to disbelieve it. As the truth comes to you, you continue to say no, 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 no. And increasingly you become hardened against this truth. That's this sense of increasing and becoming total depravity, this being against God. He says, this will happen at the end. God is not passive. He will judge. And that judgment is that they will be locked in their unbelief. Now, I love to read Puritan sermons. And, and I do for a number of reasons. But one is because they have always, almost always, have a section at the end called uses. Uses. In other words, how do we use all of this? And usually there are uses go on for pages. And so that's the question here. What's the uses for us? Well, one is, 
as I read this at least, it's used by God to sober me up. Because I realize two things. One is, what really is to come, the finality of it all, but also that the spirit of that Antichrist exists today and I need to be on my guard. I need to be on my guard all the time. And not only that, you see, I realize that that hasn't yet come. It may come in my lifetime, but I need to prepared, be prepared that it won't come in my lifetime. I mean, it's amazing. As, as Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, on the one hand, he says, be prepared because it can happen anytime. And then on the other hand, he says, be prepared because you may have to wait a long time. It may not come in your lifetime. In fact, it hasn't come in anybody's lifetime yet. And, and so you see, I need to prepare, be prepared to wait. And thus, I need to be thinking about my children and your children. And I need to be thinking about my grandchildren and your grandchildren. And I need to be thinking about the people in the world. Because you see, the reason that, that, that God hasn't restrained or taking the restraint away so that the man of lawlessness can come, so that then the end can come and all of that, is because he's presently being patient. You might remember that the apostle Peter ran into this difficulty. People came to him scoffing and saying, okay, you've been talking about this coming. When's it going to happen? And, and, and Peter said, well, you know, you need to realize that God doesn't count time the way we do. For him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so, so that's a completely different category in terms of time for God. But secondly, right now, he's being patient. God is being patient until all, now if you understand that passage, all who are going to come will come or all who are ordained to come will come. How do you understand that? But, but right now is a time of patience. And so, so what is our life now? Well, it's a life now of resolving to do good, as we talked about last Sunday. But it's a resolve of getting this gospel out so that people can hear it. Because now is the time they can respond to it. A day will come. And that opportunity will be no more. But that day has not yet come. A day of patience of the Lord's patience. And so we tell, we speak of the gospel of Christ so that others will come. In a sense, a real sense, before it's too late for them to come. And then you see, we need to take advantage of every means we have to keep us so that we stand firm. We have the very word of God, which is what we've listened to to help us. Uh, we, we, we have prayer, as we talked about last Sunday, as Paul prayed that they would be, that God would make them worthy of their calling as believers, that, that he would indeed uh, work in such a way that every good that he's worked in them will be worked out of them and be brought to fulfillment and all their works of faith and all of that. And then we have the sacrament. To, to help us. Uh, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the scripture tells us, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. 
And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the Apostle Paul lays out how we're to do this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. So as long as we're doing this, it must mean he hasn't come yet. So, so it means that we need to continue to declare his death. When we declare his death, what are we declaring? We're declaring that he's the very son of God. We're declaring that he's the very one who's come to be the expression of the justice of God, to be the expression of the love of God. And so we're declaring that. And what we're declaring then is for all who believe, we're putting it out because that great delusion hasn't come on the earth yet. So we're, we're, we have time. So we're putting it out to all of us, to all of us. And we're saying that he has indeed come once. And in his first coming, he dealt with sin and death. Believe. So that's the question, isn't it? all that's said and done about all that's going to happen, the real question, the big question, is do I believe in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us. But the answer to that question is yes. And that we know what that means. And so, Father, I pray that on this Sunday you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we are in the very presence of Jesus, the very Son of God. And that, Father, that's, there is life in his name. So, God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith by your word working by your spirit and even by this meal to strengthen our faith in such a way that we would be able to resist the spirits of antichrist that's alive in our day however it comes to us continue then to believe. I pray that we would make this gospel known in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and throughout the world. In Jesus' name.